0: Welcome to podcast number three of the Drop Everything podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Holzman, one half of the Raspini Brothers, and today I'll be talking with one of my favorite jugglers, a good friend, and the inventor of the bounce piano, Daniel Menendez. We'll talk about his early career, the influence his father had on his career, and of course, in part number two, the invention and creation of the bounce piano. Before we get to the podcasts, Let's thank a couple sponsors. First, Todd Smith. Todd Smith, the juggler's friend. One of the big reasons I'll be a, I'll be upset about missing this year's IJA convention is I will not be able to hang out at Club Todd. Club Todd has always been a big part of the conventions for me, hanging out and shooting the breeze with Todd Smith. Todd Smith has a great new club out. It's called The Assassin. It's the club with deadly accuracy. Another sponsor of the podcast who deserves a big shout out is Renegade Juggling. Renegade Juggling built me a special new prop for my routine and uh, really short notice. Really appreciate Tom Renegade and the crew at Renegade for being there for all my juggling needs. Now, sit back, drop everything, you get ready for our podcast with Daniel Menendez. Welcome to the podcast, Dan Menendez. This is podcast number three of Drop Everything. I'm talking to the original piano juggler, Dan Menendez. Welcome, Dan. Hey. Great to be here. Now I'm talking to you a couple days before Father's Day, and uh, so before we get into your story, I've always been fascinated by the story of your father. So if you don't mind, give us some background on on what he did for a living and, and how that influenced you. Well,
1: he was he started out as a professional boxer, and he was in East St. Louis, which is kind of a was the boxing hub, kind of a rough place. And uh, he had a he got a manager when he turned pro. pro. Uh, after the army after World War II and the, the manager was a magician and he talked the magician into showing him card tricks and stuff uh, while they were on the trains going to, to matches and stuff like that and got to, he got to, to learn some really some inside like professional ma- magic like you know the or- the card in the orange and tricks like that, that that are in those days you just couldn't look on the internet you know you, there was real secrets and so he had a really nice, like, an hour of magic that he could do at parties. He never did it professionally, but he, uh, he, he could kill. I, I saw him do it so many times where he would just kill at a, at a party with all his friends or whatever the event was. And he could juggle a little bit. I guess the guy showed him to juggle a little bit, but he never showed me any of it. He never tried to teach me any of it. But because I saw him do the juggling, I, uh, when I turned, like, around 13 or so, I went and got some golf balls and just taught myself to juggle. And I'd seen him do it enough that I, I had the idea, you know, and I just taught myself. And then there was nothing more to learn and really uh, just kind of sat there for a long time, uh, able to do three balls and that's it. And
0: then and your dad uh, went
1: on, wasn't he a coach for
0: Muhammad Ali or in the Olympics? Olympic team?
1: Yeah, well, so then he, he was a professional boxer and he was very successful, but then he broke his hand. And he at that point, he had come out to California and he decided to go back to college or actually to go to college because he, you know, he, he uh, had never, and then he, he went to San Jose State, and while he was there, he helped the boxing team. They had they had college boxing, and uh, and so the, the, the boxing coach wanted him because he was such, such a good boxer to, to help train the boxers. And then the boxing coach died tragically in this tractor accident. Um, and my dad had been taking classes in how to be education and so on. And the school just said, hey, you, you can be the boxing coach. So he became the boxing coach at San Jose State. And then he uh, they, they banned boxing when a boxer got killed. So boxing was banned. This is the long story. No, it's all right. I think it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, he was. He, they banned boxing from college because a guy got killed. And so he had been training. Uh, well, he, he had done such a big success at, at boxing at San Jose State that they, they made him the, the Olympic boxing coach for 1960 in Rome, and so he had all the boxers training him, and one of them was this guy, Cassius Clay, who was 18 years old, who uh, was on the team, and he trained him for quite a while, and uh, they, they ended up, he ended up winning the gold medal in Rome, became Muhammad Ali, of course, mm-hmm. and uh, then he would call my dad during his career, I'm um, just for advice and, you know, and stuff like that. And so I would answer the phone every once in a while. And be, <laughs> right, say, right, right. Hey, champ. <laughs> hey, how's it going? But yeah, he's right here. I never really got to talk to him, but I was, I was actually on the phone with him. And uh, now Your dad so, was
0: also involved with uh, soccer. I know that's one of your lifetime loves. Yeah. And transition into soccer?
1: Right. So he, uh, he, because they banned boxing, he had been using uh, soccer to train his boxers. Because it really didn't have much soccer going on, but then he started a soccer team when the back, boxing got banned, and he he was a professor at San Jose State, and uh, so then soccer kind of took off, and then he did so well at the soccer that they made him the Olympic soccer coach hmm. for the U.S. And so he was a he's he's the only person that's ever coached two separate team sports in the Olympics for the U.S. That's kind of his his big claim, other than also coaching Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, he wanted him to, to be his manager. And my dad just decided not to do it because he had a family and he had a good job and so on. But he could actually have been his manager when he started as a pro. Do
0: you remember any of his uh, coaching philosophies? Did anything he used for his teams inspire you as a, as a juggler?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, he the thing about him and it was honesty. It was really his, his whole approach. was He was not going you know, to try to pull, you know, try to, to con his own athletes, he was really, really honest with them. So when they did something good, he he made sure that they knew that he thought it was something good, and and you know in front of the other teammates and so on. And uh, so they knew that it was it was real. They knew he was coming from a real place because everybody knew, you know, he, he says the way like it is. And he was very calm. Also, he was very, you know, he wasn't excitable during the, the big matches or whatever. He was really kind of quiet. And once the the game was on. It was uh, he was no longer uh, instructing. You know, instruction was during practice. Right. Once the game was on, it's it's up to the athletes to do it, which is is the same. You know, in anything. You know, once you once if you haven't done the practicing, then it's going to be a mess. And did that okay? translate
0: into his fathering style as well? Was he always honest with you? And
1: I think so. Yeah, he was like a rock. You know, he was really it was it was militaristic, in the sense that you hear parents being. Because right. he had the Spanish background, which was very warm, but uh, there was a lot of that kind of honesty and straightforward, um, this is how it is, you know, and so you're very realistic about about where you were and how good your skills are, and I think that helped me with juggling, you know, I was always kind of over-practicing for my show, and he would give me some tips about performing, you know, that I think he, he related with boxing because boxing was really a one-person thing. You know, it was just you against the other guy and the crowd was there. So it was kind of like a lot like being a juggler. <laughs> so I think he had some some insight. And were you involved, involved with uh, athletics before you got into
0: juggling? Were you Because I always remember you at the early conventions, you always had your shirt off, the, 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 the chest hair ablaze, <laughs> <laughs> flowing in the wind,
1: and you're always very well uh, conditioned. Yeah, well, he 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 raised me to be a soccer player. He didn't he taught me boxing, but he didn't want me to do any boxing. He took me to uh, to a couple of matches. I saw George Foreman. I was in the front row. It got blood all over, me, mm. and that kind of said, "Oh yeah, I don't want to do this." <laughs> right, but right. I, was, I was raised to be a soccer player, and then I played for him at San Jose State. I played Division One soccer, and we had we had a great team when I was a senior. We we were nationally ranked, and um, we could have won the whole thing which is a big deal, you know, I mean, it's not an easy thing to do. Right. We had the team to do it, and we lost 1-0 to the team that eventually won the whole thing, uh, Indiana. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I was in real heavy-duty competitive soccer, and that helps with learning how to practice things and break things down, you know, which is what I've always done with juggling, is, is take a trick and how can I break this down into smaller tricks or, or skills that I can do that will lead me to this trick that I'm trying to do. And, and you can break any trick down into a 100 different th- skills. And it also makes it less boring for your practice, if you, you know, just constantly failing at some trick is to, if you can break it down into something you can do or just barely do, and you start feeling like, hey, I'm, I'm having six success. And so, you know, that's that's a, that's an approach I've always used. And I think that comes from, from my dad's style of, and it had a lot to do with his his style had a lot to do with boxing and psychology and psychology of sport and getting an edge and stuff like that. He actually, I think he was kind of responsible for Ali's trash talk because he he believed that you could you could use talking to your opponent to your advantage. Well Ali and, certainly had that that down. You can't yeah. do
0: that in juggling very much, does the audience like, you suckers, which you see I'm the I'm the best, I'm <laughs> no, the greatest.
1: <laughs> you are trying to. You want them to love you, they don't, you don't want them to be here against you. It's like you I was him. struggling with this guy yesterday,
0: just a pure hobby guy, and we start to juggle. First thing he does, he grabs the clubs. First thing he does is try like four clubs. He's not even close. <laughs> and I didn't want to say like, well look, if you really want to excel or get better, I wouldn't start this way. I'd maybe warm up a little bit. Because he's a hobbyist, I thought, and he wasn't looking to me for instruction. But you see, like you were saying, you got to break it down. You got to start with your scales, and then your your two balls in one hand, and
1: build but it up. I also also believe that, um, and I tell this to people: try the try the hardest thing. You know, don't don't go. Oh, well, I should never try that because I can't I can't do seven balls, so I, I should never try it. I should learn six balls first. I say try everything, and and then you know where you are. If you right. don't try everything, you don't know where you are, and you may be. You may be farther than you think. You know, Try nine balls and maybe seven balls will be easier. Um, play around with it. Just play around with everything, but be realistic. It's, it's that honesty thing that has always come back to me. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, because my computer just okay. – Oh, no, you
0: sound good. I can, I can hear you, see you. It. It's, it's all going good. My computer just went dark. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit then about – you started with this athletic background. You had this influence from your dad who had a coaching style, a philosophy – so you learn to juggle and you think like, okay, that's it. I I, I can juggle. I, that's it, right? What what else do I need to do about juggling? How did it go from that into actually a hobby, a profession, and where did right. that start?
1: Well, right about that, right about when I was in college, um, I, I was taking a class and, and one of the assignments in the class it was a PE class because I was I was thinking about being a PE teacher and like my dad in uh, high school PE teacher. So I was taking this class, and they said everybody in the class has to learn to juggle, and for the final, you have to get up and juggle in front of the class. So if you can't juggle, you fail the class. Hmm. And this is not a class that you could fail if you right, right. So, you know, I could already juggle, and I'm like, nah, piece of cake. So the final came, and, I, and this other guy could juggle pretty good, and everybody was applauding. And then I got up, and I juggled, and then I just, I kept juggling, and I went over, and I sat down in my chair and kept juggling. And everybody goes, oh, that's insane. You know, they thought <laughs> it was great. So I said, mm, so I got a. I went to the library and I got the Carlo book.
0: yeah 1974,
1: right around just, there. Well, this was 78. Okay. When I was in college and I was graduating, so I, uh, you know, it was pretty old. I was, I was 24 or something when I really got into yeah. it. But I, I started using the Carlo book and juggling every day just for fun. I did have no idea about performing or anything. I was just doing it for fun, but but I remembered that the people that cheered when I was in class and I felt completely comfortable juggling in front of those people. And I was not a guy that would get up in front of people. I just, It's something I just didn't think I could do very well. I, I could do it in, in, you know, maybe informally, but doing a show, I never thought about ever doing that. But then that felt pretty comfortable. So I think that kind of sunk in and so I started working on my juggling. And then I was showing my friends in the neighborhood and they were trying and so on. And then uh, I was looking for a juggler for like a year, I, can, I, can I see a juggler perform, and um, I saw the Karamazovs at the Cannery doing a street show, but I was with a big group and I'm like, hey, stop, let's, we gotta see this, we need to watch this, and they're all, no, no, come on, we're going to dinner. So I saw like 10 seconds of the Karamazovs, and that made me really like, "Ooh, juggling clubs, I gotta get those. And uh, I bought some juggle-bug clubs at that point, I believe, at a magic shop. And then uh, I saw Fred Anderson and the Mismos at the <clears throat> at the cannery, I think, in San Francisco. And I watched them do a whole show. And then I, I watched Fred count his money. I don't think he saw me.
0: Right, right.
1: He didn't realize I was doing it. He just <laughs> a guy. And I, he, he had like $40 in his hat. And I'm like, dude, I can juggle that good.
0: <laughs> right. Now, so don't know, like the cat was... Uh...
1: Show, street performing
0: yeah. spot out. So you grew up in the Bay Area uh, in San Jose. Is that where you grew up?
1: Yeah. And so, yeah, so I, I started thinking about doing a street show and I went to a street fair and uh, did a street show and got like 15 bucks and thought, hmm, this is pretty cool.
0: So your only inspiration to that point is you'd seen a little bit of the Karamazovs, you'd seen like maybe one or two street shows and you said, I could do this and you just went out and did it yourself.
1: I just went to a, a street fair and did a show and made 13 bucks, and I had no money. I, I, there was a point where I had 35 cents in my pocket that I was walking around with for a while, and like, if I spend this, I won't have any money. Right. I mean, I was really broke, but I was living at my parents, and you know, and they were not giving me any allowance or anything, but um, I was living at my parents' place, kind of mooching off of them. And then I started doing this, trying the street shows, and then I went to Fargo, and that's where I met you for the first time. Yeah,
0: I exactly. Is that 1980?
1: 1980, right. That was, uh, I, and when
0: you mentioned the Carlo book, I have a real soft spot for the Carlo book because that's also how I learned. knew yeah, nothing, yeah. got the book, went in the backyard, so mm-hmm. we share kind of a similar, I saw very few jugglers until I saw days, Chris Cremo on TV.
1: Yeah, I mean in those days, I think, you know, what I think I saw Chris Cremo, but it was just sort of in the back of my mind.
0: He was on yeah. the Merv Griffin show, I forget what year it was, yeah. I had been juggling maybe for a couple years and I was so excited, I remember circling it in the TV Guide, because I had gotten the TV Guide, always looking for jugglers, and it said, Chris Cremo, juggler. I circled it, waited all week, I think it was like on a Thursday, and when he came on, I was uh, blown away, but also disheartened. Because he's good. I didn't think I could do that. I thought, yeah. that I, with the look, the, the, the precision, the character, and my juggling, as you probably knew, it was... Kind of laid back. He wasn't didn't have a lot of punch or charisma. So when I saw him, I thought, oh, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know. But then Fargo, man, Fargo. I you saw I saw a guy kick up a club. I saw a guy do a curl with a with a with a ball. That was that was quite a festival way back in the yeah,
1: day. it was Barrett Felker and Peter Davidson, yeah. Jackman.
0: Remember their name? That Magnificent Material Movers before Air Jazz.
1: Right.
0: Yeah. Peter Davidson, another real influence in those early days. Barrett Felker. Remember who just, won the one uh, that competitions that year? Uh, one. He went on to work for Pixar. Michael Cass. Michael okay. yeah. I remember seeing Michael Cass in the bus, and he looked kind of like if you know Michael Cass, especially in that time, he looked more like a guy. What would you say? Maybe a computer guy or a, a chess yeah. champion or <laughs> something of that nature. And I'm like, hey, do you go to school here? He goes like, <laughs> oh, so I'm a juggler. I go. Oh, okay, you're a juggler. And <laughs> he went on to win the whole thing with a flawless routine of uh, kickups. So, so how'd you get out to Fargo? Because I know I, I
1: it was a great story. I I so then uh, here's what what happened is I was with a buddy of mine and uh, I was start starting to learn five balls. I was working on five balls from the Carlo book, and you know reading the Carlo book how to do it and then I, there was a, there was an ad in the paper that said juggling show at this local magic shop, so I went over there and there was this guy, Jerry the Juggler well it turns out he was not a juggler, he was a magician but he called himself Jerry the Juggler and he would just juggle three balls for like ten seconds, but before he started his show, he had all his props laid out on this table and he he'd left, and it was out in front of the magic store at this shopping center and there was these chairs set up and there was two people in the chairs, and I went up and I, I was with my buddy, and my buddy was like, go, go juggle those those balls in front of right, the right. People. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so I go up, and I try to do five balls, you know, and I drop them. And the guy in the audience goes, hey, how long have you been trying that? And it was Barry Baccalore.
0: Of course, another uh, very important name to us, Bay Area guys.
1: Yeah. And so he uh, he said, uh, I said, yeah, I've just been learning. He goes, I've been trying to do it too. So afterwards, he said, hey, we should have a juggling club. And we start, we started the San Jose Juggling Club that That day at that magic shop, and we it became quite big. It was it ended up being a really successful club for a while. I I don't know what's going on now there, but um, Barry ended up hosting the IJA convention in San Jose in '86 or something like that.
0: And uh, and Barry had one of the first collections of juggling videos,
1: yeah, that was big for me. That That was was
0: big for me, too. I'd go over to his house and for hours, and he would watch with me for hours and hours and analyze the jugglers. and yeah. He had it's,
1: juggling night and everybody would go yeah. over there and watch his videos and, and that was huge for me because that really made me see that there was a lot of different things and variety, you know, different ways of going, different uh, things to juggle and ways to be a performer. You didn't have to be a certain way, you know, you didn't have to be, like I thought, oh, every, all the good jugglers are Michael Davis was what I was thinking for a while. And then, like Michael Davis, that's how you do a juggling show. But seeing all the stuff with Barry had, you start to realize, no, there's, there's endless ways of being a performer. You know, you can mix anything with anything. You, can, you don't have to be a juggler, or you can be a juggler, you can be a comedy juggler, you can be a straight juggler, whatever it is. Just, there's just endless things. It was great. That was so great.
0: Well, if you want to be a comedy juggler, there's, there's a fewer good examples of how to be a good comedy juggler than Michael Davis.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's who I saw in the comedy clubs. I was going to the comedy clubs the whole time once I was old enough, and and be, becoming a juggler and you know I was just going because I liked comedy. But then I started. To see, I saw A. Whitney Brown and Michael Davis do their acts in, in San Jose uh, comedy clubs, and that for a while that was like, okay, that's how you do it, <laughs> right there.
0: Well, that's, that's a good. I mean, that's. You say there's many different ways, but certainly yeah. that template of the of the comedy juggler, I always think of Michael Davis as sort of the godfather of that style. Mm-hmm. And very few people have, have bettered that, if, if anybody. Uh, that...
1: Yeah, a. Whitney Brown was, was quite good. He was. never saw scary. him that much.
0: He, he went was on to, very, yeah,
1: Saturday Night Live, right? A. Whitney Brown. Yeah, and he became a writer for Saturday Night Live, and then he, would, he had a little segment he would do called The Big Picture. And he did stand-up. He stopped doing his juggling act. He actually had a dog for a while. He did street performing in San Francisco. And, um, so were
0: you always a uh, talking juggler? So right, right when you started, because you started with street shows and you had an interest in comedy. So was that always kind of your initial style, like the talking juggler? Com- yeah, from, juggler?
1: from seeing the, the Fred Van Anderson and the Mismos, his partner, and seeing them. I actually saw Robert Nelson, uh, and I came up to him and said, hey, are you going to do a show? And he said, it's too nice a day to do a show, and walked away. So I didn't get to see his okay. act for right, a year right. after that. He, he was like, he had a real attitude. Too nice I mean, I The crowd's I too big. <laughs>
0: I don't know. I'm in too good of a mood. I'm not my usual uh, aggressive, yeah. feisty self. I just feel too good. He doesn't want people to hate him. Right, right. Yeah, I don't, I don't want any hate today. It's too nice a day. <laughs> Okay, so then you started doing some street shows, and there was there a certain point where just click, like, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. And then you, you became a professional. Is that how it kind of
1: transpired? Um, well, it was, It was the you know, the whole thing of I didn't have a job. And I tried to get a couple jobs. And I had a job at, at UPS, uh, unloading boxes from trucks. And I figured out real quick that wasn't what I wanted to do. You gave that
0: up for juggling? Whoa, what, <laughs> what a sucker move that was.
1: And uh, then I started street performing. And I was still iffy on the street performing because I, didn't, you know, I thought, well, you know, $13 for a show. You know, this isn't going to be something I can make a living at. And then I... I went to uh, the Spring Fair in Santa Cruz, which is a big street fair, and uh, I was sharing this spot with uh, these comedians in Santa Cruz. Uh, the, uh, what do they call? They're these 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 uh, improv comedians, comedian comedy group. that were really good. They were really funny, and um, and I was making a lot of money. I was actually I had like piles of money, and that was when I was like, okay, this is it for me. This is I'm I'm all in. You know, so this was I,
0: after Fargo. What what year are we talking about here? Where you finally start making some the, those big hats?
1: Like uh, 80, 81.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah, right right away. Really, I mean, pretty quick. I, I juggled like a maniac. I mean, I really, I, I I can't imagine anybody juggling harder than I did. But I'm sure they do. You know, but how many hours a day are we talking? Six, seven? I, eight. Yeah, I I tried like I tried to. I'm gonna do eight hour juggling. You know, so I tried to do that for a while. But it it was like you would just get worse.
0: Yeah, there's a diminishing returns at a certain point.
1: And I, I realize that what really worked, and this went back to my my sports background, is is working, is working, practicing and breaking up the segments as much as you can. I mean, even you know, a half an hour here and then right. resting for a long time, letting it sink in, do another half an hour later on, try to do it every day for sure, do it to music. I really think juggling the music really helps a lot. And uh, and then uh, I was not, one of the mistakes that I made, a really big mistake, is I did not try to get into comedy writing and learning about, it was too hard to, 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 to find sources for that. And I wished I would have really, you know, got into comedy writing and, and really learned all that because later on I was doing comedy clubs and I really had the opportunity to learn more about writing comedy and I didn't take advantage of that. I was, I was doing my juggling act, my street act in comedy clubs. And I did that for many years in many comedy clubs and was living with these comedians in the in the comedy condos and stuff and should have been really trying to to be a student of, of stand up and how to do how to write jokes and stuff and I didn't do it. That was a huge mistake on my part.
0: Well many people they come into juggling first and they don't realize if you're gonna build yourself as a comedy juggler that that comedy comes first. I mean you're a comedy it's, juggler. People like juggling as much as they like, I don't know, (laughs) not very many things. It's something like I was talking the other day to somebody about how uh, you can juggle at a walk around or even practice in the park and people just walk by. They don't even want to look sometimes because Mm -hmm. like you could be doing something amazing and they just don't even want to – they think maybe you're going to rope them in to try to get money or or sell them on some – You're just strange. You're just strange. But everybody loves
1: comedy. Well, I really believe the value of an act, if you're gonna sell an act, especially if you're gonna try to do comedy, is the value of the act is eighty percent comedy, twenty percent juggling. That means the juggling is that's is, very little yeah. skill. There's not a lot of skill necessary if you really are good with the comedy. I don't think many guys go like
0: I'm really interested in comedy, 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 comedy. Oh I'm gonna learn to juggle. It's usually yeah. like I'm so into juggling, I love juggling yeah. and then oh I gotta I gotta get me some comedy. But was come great. from that direction
1: that was me and, and that's most people That's yeah. most people that you see um, there are exceptions and I, I think Edward Jackman was really funny and, and,
0: yeah he's a name that people don't know too much I think there's one YouTube video of him another really big influence back in the early days was Edward Jackman big IGA presence who had one of the first complete packages of comedy and juggling character big tricks job. yeah technical, technical but uh, disappeared from the scene. And now he really won't even um, interact with other jugglers, put the whole thing behind him, which is a
1: shame. Yeah, there's been a few jugglers that have done that.
0: Well, yeah, we've had some guys who had a lot of potential. Ken Falk comes to mind being back from San Jose, one of the young 14-year-old wonder kids who uh, then discovered girls. and uh, <laughs> Girls versus juggling. I'm, I'm going for the girls. So. All right, so you're doing your early street career. You're doing some stuff in comedy clubs. Uh, so I remember when we first met that you had like one of the kind of careers you did a lot of like uh, festivals, zucchini festival. But also you were like kind of a gorilla guy, you'd go out there and just show up at a festival,
1: do the yeah. shows, maybe some I would go anywhere. days. Anywhere. I was heavy duty, anywhere where I could street perform. You you know, it didn't matter if you're not supposed to do that, I would do it and get thrown out and I was pretty fearless. Um, I, you know, I, 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 my dad used to tell me he used to ride the rails and stuff like this. And right. So the, the type of stuff I was doing I thought was pretty tame compared to what I'd always heard. So, um, yeah, I did a lot of street performing, and it was in my blood, really. Street performing was in my blood. I, I, there's nothing like a great street show. There's nothing like it. You just – the feeling that you get being right in the middle of it with all those people, and it's their show, and they created it. And you're, you know, it's just, it's a great feeling. It's, and then you get the money afterwards and you feel like, you know, I earned this money. They they gave it to me because they liked it, not because um, they had to pay a ticket price or the, the client paid so much. So it's really cool. It's just not good money, very much money. but it's It can
0: really- be. I think of it like surfing. Like sometimes I, like right now I'm in a position in my career where I still street perform, but I consider it more of like a hobby. And I think mm-hmm. like, it's like surfing where you go out and you go, Hmm, the waves are kind of flat today. It's pretty choppy out there. There's some sharks. It's not a great day. I'm still happy I'm out here surfing, but it's not a great day. But then some days when the waves are perfect, it's awesome. It's yeah. awesome. yeah, because you're like because you're like riding that wave. You're riding the feelings of the crowd into this conclusion where they're gonna give you money. And when you can get that connection and really feel like that spontaneity of creating a show almost out of nothing, it's a rush for sure.
1: It right? is. It's there's nothing like it. There really is nothing like it in performing. I I just I I feel sorry for anybody who really has not gotten that that rush of.
0: Well, uh, it's not for everybody, right? It's, it's, right? You gotta have you gotta have your big boy pants on sometimes when you get out there. I'll scream and. <laughs> so some of, I love always when you do stories. Do you have any stories from one of these early gigs? Sometimes you've had some you've had some hellish early gigs, and you've even nowadays some of these your foreign travel. But give us like one story from the early days. Now let's get into something where a lot of people, of course, know you from is the bounce piano. So let's get – one hellish story or one great story of your street performing days. Then let's talk about the creation of that great uh, invention, the bounce piano.
1: Well, I mean the, after the street performing, I, I – you know, and I was doing shows with the piano. There's some hellish gigs that I did. Um, is that what you mean or you just mean street performance? Well, just I just – you know, we all have these stories where yeah. – st- Where there's some crazy uh,
0: occurrence, because it's always different. Every show is different, and I've always, whenever we talk on the phone, there's always uh, we both have examples of of situations that just aren't really conducive to great juggling shows.
1: Well, one the one that went well was I was doing a show at a festival, like on the on the big grass area, and in the middle of the show, this dirt is flying up out of the ground and hitting my leg. And then uh, a gopher is like peeking out. Right. And uh, the people are all just, they just start howling, laughing. And so the whole show, it was me against the gopher. So I was trying to whack him with a club and he wouldn't go away. He kept, and it was like he was being a critic of my show. Like, you know, I would do a trick and he'd start kicking dirt on me. And so that was a show that went really well. I, that was something that I was, that was not a hell gig. A hell gig for me was uh, like I was. I was uh, with a group and we were performing at a, a street sale in Watsonville. And uh, they had like a like tables out with, with clothing on sale. And there was about five or six Hispanic ladies going through the clothing. And we're out there, I'm up there trying to do a show. And they're literally turning around and scowling at me like, you know, quit making that noise. And I'm thinking, this is like the bottom. This is the... This is the bottom of show business. There there is no farther down you can go. Right. This gig right here. You know, and I got no money and and I had to do three shows like that. But, you know, you you just do it. Now, there's times when you have like five people watching and it's a great show.
0: It can be, yeah.
1: I remember being in the Pier
0: 39 during, I think it was the World Cup, and they put a sports bar right by the stage. And there are definitely times where you were doing your scheduled show and Mr. Juggler. Do you really have to do that now? We're watching the World Cup. Like, no, it's this is my time, and yeah, it's, it's not always uh, you're not always the first priority. I
1: was I worked at a, a ski resort doing my act. This is before the piano. I would I would it was pretty cool because I would ski down to the ski lines, and the people were, there was huge lines because it was during Christmas break, and I would do my juggling acts on my skis, and I would get the people to click their poles together for for applause, right. and it was a great gig. And then I would do a show. Uh, after skiing in the in the lounge area. That was a paid area. gig? I mean, they, they, you had been yeah. fired by the... By Kirkwood Ski Resort. Right? It was really nice. It was a good... I did it several years for Christmas break. So it was, it was a couple of weeks, three weeks or something. And then I would do a show. But so then I they go, to, I'd go to do my show in the in the lounge area, you know, the after ski area. And they've got a television on. And the, I think it was uh, Monday Night Football or something was on. It was a big football game. It was on. And they're all watching that. And then the guy goes he goes in there. And I wasn't watching that they were watching the football game. And he goes, uh, oh, we're going to have a show. And he turns his TV off. <laughs> right, right. Like, it doesn't hey, go over well. They're going, go on up. <laughs> I'm like, no.
0: Yeah, We had a corporate one time where we're, right before the, when the guy introduces us, right? It's a corporate event. Not a huge crowd to start with. He comes up. He goes, uh, before I have the, the jugglers come up, I have to tell you, the World Series game is tied in the bottom of the 7th. And, and like a good third of the crowd got up and left. And he goes, "Well, I had to tell him that." Afterwards, we go, "Why did you?" He goes, "Well, I had to tell him." I'm like, "Why did you have to tell him that?" But we, we still got paid. It's one thing if, if you get in the check because at least you're going like, "Well, all right, whatever."
1: Yeah, I do. Mean. Yeah, it's always going to be another show. Yeah. No matter how bad the show goes, as long, as long as the shows aren't going bad every time, you know. I I had a show where I was at a comedy club in San Jose, The Last Laugh. And I'm about to go on. It's a brick building with a brick backdrop for, like, the comedy club backdrop. And there was an earthquake, Mm. like, as the MC is about to introduce me. It was not a big earthquake, but everybody felt it. Right. And that can put a dumper in any show, (laughs) I tell you, because everybody's looking around. It's kind of a big building, you know, the kind that can just crumble.
0: Well, especially in the Bay Area or California in general, earthquakes are not something you really uh, take too lightly. Now, remember when you first mentioned the the Bounce Piano to me, and I have to admit, I was skeptical. I hope you enjoyed the first half of my interview with Dan Menendez. In the second part, we'll find out, was my skepticism warranted? Or, was the Bounce Piano a big success? I think we know the answer to that one. Big thanks to the IJA, Todd Smith Juggling, and Renegade Juggling for their support. Now, go to the IJA webpage, download part number two, the second half with Dan
1: Menendez.